Well, we're continuing with the book of Esther last week. <clears throat> we did an introduction as well as chapter one, and I want to hit some of the high points of that introduction again, just as a reminder, so that we keep the context. Uh, and I also found a few things as I was reviewing that um, seemed valuable to me that are just minor points that I might not have made very well last week or didn't make because I know I didn't include them. But, but let me go through this fairly quickly. We've got a King Ahasuerus. He's also Xerxes I in the modern record. Uh, he's a King of Persia or the Medo-Persian Empire. Prior to this book, he inherited the Persian Empire from his father Darius. Darius inherited it from Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonian Empire. And so the Babylon, Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Judah and taken captives. Remember the book of Daniel. That's how we get up to where we are in Esther of having some Jewish people over in Persia. Starts with the Babylonian, Babylonians taking captives and people are continuing to take captives. Each king uh, manages that how he wants and uh, that's how we get down here to Ahasuerus. It's interesting, he was selected to become king by his father Darius, and it was over his older brother. He had an older brother that was not selected to be king, but here is Ahasuerus, and he finds himself king of a large multi-ethnic empire. They are, many have said that I've read, it was actually the largest empire of all time in terms of the landmass and the people groups and all of those things, it probably was the height of those empire kinds of things that happened uh, in this, in the, back in this age, even up through the modern day empires of Rome. Rome had a lot, but you'd have to say that in terms of just general magnitude, uh, he had the greatest. Um, he, Ahasuerus uh, continued um, his, the conquest that was started by his father Darius toward the people of Greece and the, the influence of uh, the nation of Greece over that area in that part of Europe. He had earlier consolidated his power by crushing some revolts in both Egypt and Babylon. So he was tried as a king and had success in those areas. I mean, if you think about Egypt and what we saw at the end of the book of Genesis, they were over Egypt at this point, and it even had a revolt in Egypt and, and put it down. Same thing with the area of Babylon that they had conquered. Had a revolt, put it down. And as he made his conquest of Greece, his father had started it, was not fully successful, Darius went, I'm sorry, Darius, Ahasuerus went, and he had some success to the point that he even raised the city of Athens during his conquest. And so it looked like things were going well, but the war eventually turned against him. He found himself in a position where it looked like he and his armies might be um, cornered and captured and isolated as a result. And so he made a re quick retreat back to his home turf. 
And that's when we get into this 180 day party that we talked about last time. Uh, this war so far had been expensive. In the 180 day party, many people believe that it was much more than a party, that it was actually a planning session for going back and continuing the war. And so they get their six months of planning done is the way some people guess at it. And honestly, we don't know. Did they do that? We don't know what they were doing. But uh, certainly that's a real possibility considering who he had there. And his later actions were to go back to war. Um, and so they have this 180-day party at the Citadel in Susa, which is in Persia, the winter capital. It was in the third year of his reign. And with all these important people there, they may indeed have been planning the party. They certainly had an impressive display of his royal trappings. And in chapter one, we saw that after 180 days of partying, he had the seven day long banquet. It was in the garden of the court of the palace. And again, a big display of his fine things, drinks served in gold vessels plentiful, but the drinking was not compulsive. Each person could drink as they desired. And on the seventh day, the king is merry with wine, the way it's described in Esther chapter 1. And so he asks his servants, the eunuchs that managed the queen, to bring in Queen Vashti with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty, and she refused. This king went from the merry with wine king to the angry with the queen king. And it says his wrath burned within him, and he turned to his wise men. According to the law, what should be done with Vashti? And Mamukin uh, stood up, took the, took the podium, so to speak, and said, this is a big deal. Everyone's going to hear about it. Women everywhere will despise their husbands, and they'll behave like Vashti. And so he recommended a royal edict written in the laws of, Media, of Persia and Media and cannot be repealed. So even the king couldn't repeal that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of the king and uh, give her royal position to another more worthy person. She was obviously not worthy. She didn't behave, didn't follow the king's edict and publicize the order and maintain the order in the homes of the kingdoms. Ahasuerus liked this idea. Sounded good to him, and it was done. And as a matter of fact, this communication they method that they had throughout his kingdom was much like the uh, Pony Express was in our history with regard to getting mail moved around. When they wanted to make mail move across the country, they would dispatch horsemen, and one would ride. And uh, when the horse was done or the person was done, somebody else would pick it up and carry it on. So they went to a lot of trouble when there was a law made by the king and they wanted it publicized. I mean, this was a big deal, putting it out to everybody. And uh, I want to talk for just a minute about another thing uh, that as I left the class last week, I, I had a couple discussions that were helpful. But I felt like there was something missing that, that I wasn't putting into a very good perspective. And I, I want to put that in perspective this morning. It kind of started with Russell brought up the point of, well, the order in the kingdom. You know, they had a, 
a way that they were used to that worked in their homes. I mean, everybody had a standard of uh, responsibilities and roles. And this, this kind of a thing that Vashti had done could be very disruptive to the order of the community. I had had a little bit of a discussion that I led with regard to you know, right and wrong and the role of women and whatever. And I think what, what I was missing that we need, to, we need to recognize as we work our way through the book of Esther, we're looking not at a God-led biblical culture. It isn't even a culture that God established like he did with the Jews, and they disobeyed. I mean, this is a culture that uh, everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. There is no standard for them that they ought to be looking at to see. Now, we could go to Romans 1 and know that God has put in everybody's heart an understanding of who he is, but these folks are, are, are not a part of the work that God has done directly, indirectly, yes, but directly like he did with the Jews and the people of Abraham. And so when we, when we look at what we're going to see throughout this book, I mean, we're seeing... I think the right way to say it is a pagan culture. We ought not expect to see an ethic that's based on anything that God established with Abraham or anything biblical. This is, these are people who are not godly people going about living their lives in their non-godly ways. And, and that's probably an important thing to keep as a backdrop and not go down rabbit trails that I might have been quick to go down about their individual behaviors. Now it's fine to look at the behaviors of non-godly groups of people and say that's not very godly and we can certainly do that from time to time but our expectation of who they are is really people who have not been cultured by any kind of a godly background outside of where God chose to intervene in people's lives. I mean obviously we can take a lot of joy in what he did with Nebuchadnezzar because he used ungodly Nebuchadnezzar to bring his punishment, his judgment upon Israel, <clears throat> even leading to some of the captivity we see here, but before he's done, he calls Nebuchadnezzar into recognizing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the God, the one true living God, and brought him into subjection to that. So God does work in these other cultures, but not nearly in the same way he worked in the descendants of Abraham. <coughs> so with that, ready to look at chapter 2. Any questions or comments? All right, let's go over to Esther chapter 2. And Esther um, is up in there just before Job and right after Nehemiah and Ezra, if you need a little help finding it. Uh, if you if you really want to get specific, if you happen to be carrying a New American Standard, it's on page 672. But if you're, uh, I'm sorry, a MacArthur Study Bible New American Standard. Uh, but let's take a look at Esther 2, 1 through 7. And I'd really appreciate if somebody could read those verses for us. After these things, when the anger of King Arasius has abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, what had been decreed and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, 
and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa and the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be, let their cosmetics be given them and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish, son of a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jacobna, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when the father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as, a, as his own daughter. Okay, we're setting the stage for the introduction of both Esther and Mordecai into a very direct relationship with this this series of events and with King Ahasuerus. And let's start there with verse 1. After these things, that after these things is probably uh, a statement worth expanding a lot. If I were planning to write the book, I would put some of these other things in here and before we're done with this chapter, we're going to be talking about the seventh year of his reign. Now, this isn't right at the seventh year yet, but we're getting close. So some years have actually gone by. As a matter of fact, if we looked at history, this is after the second attempt at a war to overcome Greece. He went back, had another war with them, and didn't do much better than he did the first time. Had some successes, had some failures, wound up back home not having conquered Greece. And so he's back home after another war, and he's sitting around, apparently, or something like that. His anger has subsided, and what does he think about Vashti? And he thinks about what she had done, and the decree that he had sent out that she could never be in his presence again. And I think it's right to read more into those words than what is actually said. And the reason I think it's right is the reaction of the people around him. When you're around the king and you see him contemplating things or doing whatever, it's in your best interest to figure out what you want to do to make this not a situation that erupts into something that is disruptive to the kingdom, to the palace, to your job, maybe even to your own life. And so they have a suggestion. They see him thinking about Vashti. Now we don't know if he knew that, if they knew it was Vashti, but they, they get the drift here. This guy sent his wife off. She can't come around him. And he's feeling the effects and the loneliness that would go with that. So they look at him and said, well, let's do this. Which is interesting because 
Years earlier when he made the decree, part of the plan was we're going to get a new queen to replace Vashti, right? Remember that? We'll send her away and give the office to someone who's more deserving. Well, that apparently didn't get followed through on. And you can imagine why not, because if shortly after he sends Vashti away, he says, oh, by the way, let's go up and try this thing with Greece again. Well, that kind of puts all that on hold. That's not the priority. But now it's becoming the priority. And so what did they say? Let's get beautiful young women, virgins, to be sought for the king. And let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, which there were quite a few. I've got it down a little later. It talks about, I think it was 127 provinces. Um, <clears throat> and so that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel in Susa, <clears throat> into the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who happens to be in charge of the women. And let's give them cosmetics. And then the young lady who pleases the king can be queen in place of Vashti. The, mat the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now, if you think back through what was suggested, this was not a small event. I mean, we, I grew up with uh, the Miss America pageant being popular. Um, there was also Miss Universe. There were, there were a couple of those out there. And, you know, each state for Miss America would pick young, a young woman to put up in their, in, in their stead for their, to represent their state. And it might have seemed like a big operation. It was nothing compared to this. I mean, we, we've got a government out at work with overseers in each province to gather what? All of the beautiful young virgin women. We're going to get them all transported to the capital at Susa, and the king then from amongst those women can find the one he wants to make queen. This is a big deal. Um, it's it's not, not small. As a matter of fact, just think about the transportation. Because we can start at the top and take off all the airlines, they're not there, and you can just keep going down. And so transporting these women from these outlying countries was going to be a big event. So that's what they did. And then it, this, the account of this series of events um, shifts over uh, to um, the Mordecai's part in this. I'm sorry, I'm trying to make sure I'm keeping up with my notes here. Um, oh, by the well, no, that's the right spot. So at the citadel in Susa, there was a Jew whose name was Mordecai. And so we are introduced to Mordecai first, and he, they list the generations that he came through. Ultimately, he was the son of Kish, who was a Benjaminite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. So he came over, his ancestor came over to Babylon era, area with the Nebuchadnezzar time of bringing Jews across back to Daniel in that era. And I want to turn to 1 Samuel 9, 1 through 9, 1 and 2. And that will give us just a little bit of, a, of, a, of an account 
of how some of this is coming to be. 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. Who can read those verses for us? There is a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Athaliah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Okay. Now, so who is this handsome man Saul? What's his big role in the history of Israel? He was the first king, right? He was a Benjaminite. Now, I don't want to create confusion here. Uh, so this is, we're not talking about the Kish that we're looking at over in um, Esther yet, but who was his father? Who was Solomon's Solomon? Who was Saul's father? We just read it. Huh? His name was Kish. And and all I'm really doing is showing that in the Benjaminite clan, the name Kish certainly wasn't uncommon. He was it was a name that was it was in the Benjamite clan, there was a Kish who was King Saul's father. And when we get to this era, which is definitely much later, we also have a Kish that's a Benjaminite. He is the ancestor to Mordecai. And this Kish was brought over with the exilees from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeconiah... Uh, also King Joachim in most of the accounts that we would read. He was the king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered him. Uh, also, let's go over to look at Jeremiah 24, verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah 24, 1 through 10. In there right before Lamentations in Ezekiel. And uh, right after Isaiah in there, Jeremiah 24, 1 through 10. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah and the officials of Judah, with the craftsmen and metal workers from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me, Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, the first ripe figs, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. The good figs are very good, and the bad ones very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. Then the word of the Lord came to came. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, so I will regard as the good or as good captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land, and I will bring them up and not overthrow them. 
and I will plant them and not uproot them. I will also give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me wholeheartedly. But like the bad things, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, this is what the Lord says. So I will give up Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem to remain in this land, and the ones who live in the land of Egypt. I will make them an object of terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth, as a disgrace and as a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I will scatter them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the plague upon them until they are eliminated from the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. So when we read this passage in Jeremiah, what do we learn about the exiles that are taken from Judah? They are a remnant. That's good. There's two groups. Two groups. One, one honors God and one does not. There's a group that God sees as good, and he's going to treat them accordingly. He's going to take care of them. He's going to see that they are not uprooted, that they continue, and that they are successful, and that they're part of his kingdom, honoring him and him honoring them in the exile. What's going to happen to the bad group? What's that? They'll be destroyed. They'll be destroyed. Yeah, God will let the calamities come upon them so that they lose their inheritance as was given in the promised land. And so when we look at exiles, this gives us a context to think about Mordecai and when we get to it, Esther. There are people in the exile that are clearly people of God's kingdom and he will bless them and care well for them. And we saw that if we look at Daniel at all, we realize that God has some key people that were taken in the exile that honor him and risk their lives multiple times in order to honor God and not honor this earthly king Nebuchadnezzar and treat Nebuchadnezzar as a god. They honored even their food laws that you see early in the book of Daniel. They did a lot in order to maintain their testimony and their obedience to God. And so here we come to Mordecai, and Mordecai and Esther are both of that good fruit category who find themselves as descendants in the exile. And so we see Mordecai introduced, and he has a role. He is being uh, taken care of one of his relatives who was left as an orphan, and that relative is Hadassah. And Hadassah, or Esther, is his uncle's daughter, so it is his one of his parents' brother. And she had no father or mother, and he's raising her up, and she is a beautiful young woman. So there's quite an age difference between these two cousins, probably. At least enough that he can act as the parental-type person in the relationship to this young woman that needs parenting and he took her as his own daughter so he is caring for her and taking care with her uh, to raise her up so that takes us to uh, the, the next portion which is verses 8 through 20 
which is the end of the chapter. And so if I could get somebody to read that for us, I would appreciate it. And if you don't want to read it all, just stop. Somebody else can pick it up. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the, one, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or, kin or, or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. <clears throat> and every day Mordecai walked in front of the court, the harem, to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king uh, Arasers, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was a regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem of the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except that Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, Araceras, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of a pasty. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of the taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up to him, up by him. And in those days as Mordecai no, was sitting on. in the king's gate. I goofed. 20 is not the end of the chapter. Super. Let's save that for a bit. Okay? Thank you, Rick. So, um, Verse 8, we see the king's command goes out, and many young women are gathered in Susa. And Esther was taken as well. And, and even some of the people that would quickly believe that Esther was willingly part of this, they make this point that the wording doesn't really indicate whether Esther wanted to be part of this group or was simply commanded to be part of the group. So we really don't know... Uh, if that was her plan or not but certainly she's included in the group and so she was taken into the palace and went into the custody of this man Haggai that had the responsibility to be in charge of these women and it's very clear that his job is to prepare them 
for this time that they will be spending with the king later. And Esther pleased him and found favor with him. And so he quickly, soon, after meeting her, provided her with cosmetics and the right foods and seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. This reminds me a little bit of what we studied with Joseph. Now, Joseph didn't always start out in the best situation, but soon after he would go into his service for any of the Egyptian people when he was in those roles, like in the prison, also when he was working for Potiphar quickly, he rose to the top because he was uh, found favor. He, God was with him, we constantly hear, and he would be treated very well because he had earned that and deserved it. And here is Esther upon meeting this man. He looks at her and she finds favor in his sight. She gets a lot of privilege right here. She's put in the best place for these women that are waiting in the harem. And he makes sure she has the best of the things for her time of preparation. And so she starts out on the right foot. And much like we would say about Joseph, God was with him, was evident in what happened. Can we say that by the events we see here, we know God is with her? I mean, this is just happening quickly. And in verse 10, we find out that she is following the direction of Mordecai. She did not make known her people, or her kindred. Mordecai instructed her that she should not make them known. And this might give us some context to that. Go over to Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. When we look at Ezra, there is some history in a part of Ezra's book that was really before the time of Ezra. Um, and there's also some time of Ezra kinds of things. And, but Ezra is the early part of the early trip back to resettle the area of Judah. And so this is somewhat contemporary with the time of Esther and Mordecai, probably a little bit before in the verses that we're reading here. So let's look at Ezra 4, 4 through 6. See if I can get there as well. So we've got some people from Judah that are back working on the temple, rebuilding the temple. And uh, this is part of what happens while they're there. Somebody read that for us. Ezra 4, 4 through 6. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So Ahasuerus has already received a letter accusing these Jewish people of being troublesome and not doing well. And so 
the anti-Jewish sentiment is already in the culture. Now, was Mordecai aware of the letter? What was going on? Were all the Jews aware that they were unpopular? You know, what's what? Don't really know for sure, but certainly it gives us some context to say he may have been saying, just wait with that. That doesn't need to be part of the equation at this time. Who knows but that it is the very spirit of God leading Mordecai. I mean, we can find this earthly reason to say he may have been concerned about the anti-Jewish sentiment. It may also be that God's giving him direction and wisdom about just not doing it. So for whatever reason, he's given this direction, whether it's from God directly or from his perceptions of the culture and wisdom in general, and she is following that. And so he is out there walking back and forth in front of the court in verse 11 where she is wanting to learn how she was and how she was getting along. When we hear then that uh, each lady was to be given a turn after the end of 12 months under the regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months oil and myrrh, six months spices and cosmetics. That was pretty extravagant, if you want my opinion. Uh, you hear of people enjoying going to a spa to kind of get refreshed in similar ways. Well, that was a year-long event of, of being prepared. And, you know, the oil and the myrrh and the spices and the cosmetics and by the way, that word cosmetic um, could all, probably could have been translated a number of other ways, including uh, we would probably call it rub downs. Um, but sometimes it was physically rather um, uh, significant. I'll just put it that way. In terms of um, it could be used even to the term beating. Now, that we don't mean that certainly by any means here, but it, it could have involved some very physical things as far as uh, rub downs and those kinds of a thing. And so they're going all out with these women. They get a whole year to work on that. And she is no different. She gets those same 12 months of beauty treatment. In verse 13, then the young lady would go into the king uh, after this had been done. And she could take anything with her that she wanted to uh, from the harem to the king's palace. And it says here, in the evening she would go in, in the morning, in verse or in the evening, and in the morning she would come out, and she would return to the second harem under the custody of Shagaz. And uh, he was a eunuch in charge of the concubines. And she wouldn't be asked, she wouldn't go back in before the king unless. He was particularly pleased with her and asked for her by name. And when Esther gets her turn, then she goes in and she has the option to take anything she wants with her from the time of her preparation, but she left that in the hands of Haggai, the one who was overseeing her. We don't know what she actually took, but was what he would have suggested. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So she was striking and making an impression with everybody along the way to the king. And she, in verse 16, went into King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace. It was the tenth month uh, 
which is a tenth month of Tibeth, and this is where we hear in the seventh year of his reign. If we look back at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we would see the big party was in the third year of his reign. And so there's a four-year time span that has gone on between the party and the time when Esther is actually taken to the king, roughly four years. And so the stage is set, and the results of all of this is found, are found in verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So once he meets Esther, this apparently goes pretty quickly. Did she even go back to the second harem? I don't know. She very well may have, may not have. Don't know how quickly this came to be. And we also don't know a whole lot about that second harem and what its purpose was. Was there going to be a runner-up or what? I don't know what the whole deal was um, and what that function was going to be but that's where they were headed after they had been with the king. And so now Esther, Esther is queen in place of Vashti. And in verse 19, uh, he gives a great banquet. And this great banquet was called Esther's banquet, if you will. It was the coronations, what we would probably call it today. And there were all his princes and his servants, and he made a holiday for the provinces, gave gifts according to the king's bounty, and from the tradition and what we know, it almost certainly included a relief from taxes, at least for a day, as well as probably many that were conscripted into the army were probably freed from that obligation. And then we see um, verse 19, when all the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. So what's this second time once again? Not sure what's going on here. Many speculated that uh, he was going to select some more to keep in his harem. Don't know. Uh, but Mordecai is in the king's gate. And so that tells us a little bit more about Mordecai because being in the king's gate would normally be reserved for people who had some official responsibility within the kingdom. You don't sit in the king's gate as a place where the business of the king comes and goes unless you've got a position and a responsibility to care for in that role. So we don't know any specifics about what that role might have been, but it's very, very probable that he had that kind of a responsibility. And so here he is in the king's gate, and we hear that Esther then in verse 20 had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her for. So she, she still hadn't done it, but there's a reason. Esther did what Mordecai told her, and she had done when under his care. In other words, we hear from this that Esther had grown up as an obedient adopted, if that's the right word, daughter. She was cared for by Mordecai as his own daughter, and she had followed his instruction, and she continued to do that even after becoming queen of this great empire. And so we have 
Esther put in place now as the queen of this land and we then get to see Mordecai play a role in the kingdom as well. Let's read verses 21 through the end of the chapter, which is 23. In those days when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who had guarded the door, became angry and sought to attack King Ahasuerus. And, but the plot became known to Mordecai, and he informed Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in Mordecai's name. Then, when the plot was to, investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a wooden gallows, and it was written in the book of, book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. All right, so here's Mordecai. At one time, while sitting at the king's gate, somehow, we don't know if he overhears these two talking or what, but Big Thin, Big Thin and Teresh were two officials that were angry. And clearly they were angry with Hasaris, for they sought to, quote, lay hands on him. And we know certainly from the context, they don't just plan to pat him on the back. They have every intention of taking his life. They're, these gentlemen are interested in being responsible for a palace coup. And uh, just to look ahead a bit, um, indeed, Ahasuerus is eventually assassinated uh, some years later, and I forget how many, but about 10. And so he, he, is, he is taken out by assassination. Apparently, these weren't the only two, ultimately, that decided that he needed to go through death. But this is their plan, and Mordecai becomes aware of it. And so Mordecai does a very good thing. Mordecai tells Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king, but she didn't just come and say, let me tell you what I found out. She comes and says, you need to know that this man Mordecai, who sits in the gate, has found out that Big Than and Teresh are planning an assault on you. And so she makes sure Mordecai gets the credit. Now, one thing that's good here, I really appreciate included in the story, is the next phrase. When the plot was investigated, because we know politics. Have you heard any accusations recently? You wonder what the truth really is? <laughs> okay. This is no different. I mean, there, there are all kinds of politics that can go on in these kinds of kingdoms. Read the book of Daniel. They were out to get Daniel and they set him up multiple times or tried to. And God saw him through each one of those. But here they are. So the plot was investigated and it was found to be so. And so as a result, these men were both hanged on a wooden gallows. And this was probably, I don't know if I imagine it correctly what actually happened, but it wouldn't be a gallows like the Old West gallows. The executions in this time, even when we read in the scriptures, cursed is a man that hangs on a tree, we hear that word hanged and it's easy for us to think they found a tree and lynched somebody, right? But that's not what was happening in these, these eras. That's a fairly modern invention. 
in this case, being hanged usually was a form of impalement up in the air. So you were off the ground for the world to see, impaled to lead to your death. It's even projected by many that the inventors of crucifixion were the Persians. Now, I don't know that's right. Don't know if it matters if they were or weren't. But it's interesting to put this together and think about they were brutal in their, quote, hanging. And uh, it does have some similarities to what would eventually become crucifixion. And crucifixion wasn't an impalement like this probably was. But they were hanged on a gallows. And the next line is also very important, but it was fairly typical. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. What is the book of the Chronicles? Obviously, we have a Chronicles in the Old Testament, right? Well, we're not talking about those Chronicles. And that's fairly obvious. But the Chronicles are the things that occurred in the king's reign that either he wanted to be able to look back up and remember what happened, or he wanted his people, after he was gone and his posterity, to look back and see the events of his kingdom and his kingship. And so it was the big events, or the more important events, that were written in the book of the Chronicles. And a lot of the history that we know about what was going on with Ahasuerus comes out of some of those kinds of chronicling type books. That's how we know the times that he was king, the times that he went to war against the Greeks, and we get that from other chronicles, if you will, of the era as well. But this is one that's important to Ahasuerus. He wants this down, he wants it remembered, he wants it known, and it has significance. And so he, in his presence, has this written in the book so that he knows this is properly recorded. Now, why would he want it written in the book? Didn't mean to stump you on that. <laughs> What's that? He just wanted everybody to know his history. Well, know his history. But there's another piece of that that's pretty important. To get your name written in the book of the Chronicles of the king is a big deal. And so he wanted Mordecai, his credit for saving the king, to be listed there. And we're going to find that out later, that indeed Mordecai's name is there. And that's a big deal. Now, when we read the book of Esther, one of the things that we have to do is we have to look at it with a little bit of insight. We can't just look at the book and demand from the book it tell us everything we ought to be gathering from it. Because here I will give you an example. Um, when we look at the book of Esther, so far how many times has the book cited God's hand at work. Now, we talked about this in the beginning. The name of God doesn't even appear in the book. And so as we read the book of Esther, it falls upon our responsibility to be looking at where is God at work? What's going on? What's the purposes of this book to us? And we're going to certainly see this with a lot more emphasis and expansion of detail as we work our way through the book. But can we already see God at work in this book? Well, it probably helps that probably every one of us here knows the story to come, at least to some degree. 
And so we know that God is laying the foundation for what he wants to do in a very big picture in his kingdom. And so as we, as we look at what we've seen so far, uh, which parts of this book, what events have we seen that we would say are part of the providential plan of God? The remnant was to be saved? The relationship with Mordecai and Esther. Esther is queen. She's chosen. Now I will confess to you. I asked you a trick question. <clears throat> we could go over and look at many New Testament verses in other places that would tell us that God's purposes are always fulfilled and that everything that happens on this planet happens as a part of the providential plan of God. And so when we see even the defeat of Harassarasus coming home and having a 180 day party slash conference, whatever it was, and then his seven days of merriment and his invitation to Queen Vashti and Queen Vashti's refusal, what his wives, all of those things are a part of the providential plan of God. And we ought not shy away from letting those details shine out to us that God is at work in very small things in life and at work in very significant things, things we think are significant in life, and they're all significant to God himself. And so it, this book that is written and what's recorded here, there is nothing here that God is observing and saying, okay, 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 here I'm going to insert myself. Okay, okay, oh, now I'll do it over here. This whole tale, I don't want to use that word, this whole account of these historical events are God at work. Even if we did not see the obvious outcome that, that comes out of his intention to protect his people, the events of life are at God's control and command. And sometimes he allows evil to happen, and sometimes he thwarts evil. But when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Judah and took captives, we could say, well, Okay, he wanted to punish Judah. But you could start going back through the history of the Old Testament and see that he had told Judah, if you follow my commandments and live in the ways I'm asking you to, this will happen. But if you don't, this will happen. And God was very patient. They rebelled over and over again. They worshipped foreign gods. They rebelled and violated the commands. They did all of these things. And God, in his timing, sent Nebuchadnezzar to take, to overcome Judah and Jerusalem. Not all, not all that happened at the same time. There's a little time before he actually got Jerusalem taken over. But, and then take the captives back. But even in so doing, God had planned for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and all the events in the book of Daniel. And we could even start looking forward and saying, even the events in the book of Esther 
were a part of God's plan, which even begins to make sense as we look and look at it from the New Testament perspective of Ephesians 1.3, chosen in him before the foundations of the world. And so it's up to us as we read the book of Esther to look at these events and say, God is working his plan for his will, his purposes to be done, which include in the book of Esther, saving the Jewish remnant that existed under captivity when King Ahasuerus was in charge of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so as we read these events, we ought to be recognizing God's hand significantly at work at every step along the way. Was every step pleasant for everybody? No. Even for Esther and Mordecai, it looks like they walked on pins and needles at times and had concerns about what would happen. Esther, later on, will put her own life at risk based on the behavior she had seen out of the king in the past. And these are all things of God at work to take care of his purposes and his plans for a remnant to protect them in the area of the Medo-Persian Empire. Questions, comments, thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yes. During the Daniel interpreting and the second greatest secular empire in the history of the world, the Medo Persian Empire. And Daniel himself uh, was a high official under both Darius and Cyrus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, well, it's going to be somewhere around six generations or so, however long it takes for these different kings. Because you have Nebuchadnezzar and, you, and then you have his son and then and then he, they're conquered and you have the four kings before we get to Ahasuerus. Yeah, it, it's Alexander the Great that will eventually defeat the Medo-Persian Empire. Yeah, that's Yeah, you've got two Jews of that are going to take huge roles. We we don't get to see that played out. We just get to see them established in terms of their roles with the Medo-Persian Empire. Yeah, no, you're 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 both right to to recognize those things that uh have to do with it's amazing what God is doing here. And there's a trigger point in here that's essential and we're going to see it in the in the chapters to come but these things would not probably have occurred well they wouldn't have occurred I don't think 
They were certain to occur because God planned them, okay? But one of his key events in here is however Mordecai found out about this plot. I mean, it seems small at the moment, but it will come back to play a huge role before we're done. I think it would be really instructive for us too today as we are definitely entering a time where the nation of the world is going to become more brutal and vicious and uh, less godly, that God still will be using his people We should expect God to do similar things in our lives. They may not be historically as great, but in our lives they will be just as important. And we should be expecting that. Good point. Well, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we see so much of life from our earthly perspective, from our uh, physical eyes, and from our worldly experiences. I don't necessarily mean evil worldly, but Lord, just experiences in life. And Lord, we are so slow sometimes to recognize the level of detail and work that you are doing around us, maybe doing through us, certainly doing on our benefit as believers in Christ and ones that want to see your kingdom be honored and glorified. And you as a person, you as our God, in all of aspects of Trinity, be honored and glorified. Lord, open our eyes and move our expectations so that we will be expecting your work around us. Lord, it is in the most difficult times in the scriptures that we see you at work most visibly. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the words you've given us to encourage us. And we look forward to what you will be doing in our midst. And then we really look forward to eternity apart from this body of sin and death. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.